You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I think he's a man for our times. And I, I say this because I think we are desperate for leaders who are unafraid to be centrists. There is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. A huge increase in newer elements of our defenses. Development of unrealistic programs to cure every ill in agriculture. These and many other possibilities each possibly promising in itself, may be suggested as the only way to the road we wish to travel. But each proposal must be weighed in the light of a broader consideration, the need to maintain balance. On the podcast today, I'm speaking with William Hitchcock. He is the author of The Age of Eisenhower, America and the World in the 1950s. He teaches history at the University of Virginia, and he joins me on the podcast. William, thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me, Bruce. You know, what uh, struck me reading your book, uh, something that Theodore White said about Eisenhower. He makes people happy. No cavalcade I have followed in the entourage of any other political figure in this country has ever left so many smiling, glowing people behind as an Eisenhower tour. The 70-year-old hero with his cherubic pink face drew from the crowds a yearning burst of cheers. And it's really true then and, and true now. There's very few people who dislike Eisenhower. What did he do to get that reputation, and how come it's been so hard for anyone else to follow him? That's a great question. I think the thing that I learned the most about Eisenhower in writing this book was how his contemporaries viewed him rather than the way history came to view him. Because his contemporaries, not just the voters, but the people who worked with him, uh, his peers in the military, um, they absolutely admired him and they were they 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 said again and again and again and I, I i've tried to pull this out in a kind of character profile of him in the book that eisenhower radiated immense charisma and although um you know we tend to see him now in the past as a in black and white and as a rather elderly figure a kind of a figure sort of from the past at the time, Eisenhower was one of those guys, you know, who walked into the room and every head swiveled and everyone said, that's the most important man, not just in the room, but possibly in the country. And he had that effect on people, not only when he was president, but even in his early, uh, early years in the military. He just had a, a quality that people uh, were drawn to. And I, 
I, I think this is something so crucial to political success is a sense of confidence, authenticity, uh, comfortable in his own skin. You know, he'd been a great athlete. He, he walked with kind of a, a sense of vigor, a sense of confidence. He grew up in Kansas, but he traveled around the world so he could be both a kind of Midwesterner and a Westerner, but he was also a very sophisticated man. He spoke in very plain, ordinary language that people understood and felt was, uh, was clear and authentic. Uh, he just had this sense of, um, of being a kind of quintessential American, and everyone felt, I think he understands me. I, I think I trust that guy. And so the keys to his political success were both you know, great mm. intellect and skill, which he kind of, he kind of downplayed, uh, but then this uh, this personality that was so warm and 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 charismatic and uh, and appealing. I mean, you consider him a good politician. He was a brilliant politician. I mean, this is the great myth about Eisenhower was that it was all easy for him. You know, he was a, oh he was a popular general, so of course he was going to get elected president. Uh, but in fact, he, he he was a good politician while he was in the military. You don't climb to the the top of the military, the army, without being politi- having some political skills. But he had a natural way of uh, of retailing his ideas, what he wanted to get done, in a way that seemed very unthreatening, that seemed right, that seemed appealing to a large constituency. And that's kind of kind of what you need to be able to do as a as a politician. And he strikes me as one of those guys. Uh, they said this about George Washington. Um, a few others, Zach Taylor, a couple other presidents where you know, maybe Grant, uh, hard to get inside, keeping things close to the vest. Definitely. Definitely. No, he, he was not, uh, he did, he, he, he was not a, you know, a 21st century figure. You know, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't, <laughs> uh, emote and talk about his inner feelings and so forth. What, but, but what he did do was, um, Again, I keep coming back to that word authenticity because Eisenhower was a true believer in the American experiment, and he was unashamed about that. You know, when politicians say that today, you kind of expect it, and you say, well, of course he's going to say that. He loves America. When Eisenhower said it, it rang true because here was a man who really could have done anything. He was so skilled in many ways, but he was a public servant for his whole life. He gave his whole life to the military and then to public service with a brief uh, tour as uh, head of uh, Columbia University. And he was just someone who was a sort of, as he put it, he was a he was a fanatic about America. And I think this is, again, what uh, what people were drawn to was this sense of of his patriotism, his, his joy about the United States. Understandably proud of this preeminence, we yet realize that America's leadership and prestige depend not merely upon our unmatched material progress, riches, and military strength, but on how we use our power in the interest of world peace. Been around the world and seen a lot of other countries where things were a mess, and he felt the United States was uh, was special. Yeah, well, I think then you get away from a kind of cartoonish vision of that America. If you're talking about the 1950s, it was a time when we were proving it, uh, had just beaten uh, dictatorships around the world, and then the 1950s is often heralded by people now. We were just talking about a, had a podcast about the good old days and, and income inequality and workers' wages and things like that. But the 50s is one of those periods where we, we definitely look back fondly. Yours is a book about Eisenhower, but also a bit about the, the 50s. Was it really a good time? Well, this is a, a, you know, a crucial question because, uh, one of the reasons that Eisenhower was so sort of downplayed by a lot of historians and especially even, 
uh, uh, people writing about him right after his presidency was they said, well, the 50s was an easy decade. Uh, mm-hmm. Everything was going fine. Everyone was making money. There was no wars. Uh, anybody could have been president. A- anybody would have looked good in that decade. Gee, you try running the country in the 60s, and then that's real trouble. And and my my feeling is, you know, that's completely uh, ahistorical. The mm-hmm. 1950s was a complicated decade filled with tensions and conflict. I mean, for every old blackboard, there are now hundreds of new electronic computers. The prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the power of money is ever-present and is gravely to be regarded. Yet in holding scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite. It is the task of statesmanship to mold, to balance, and to integrate these and other forces, new and old, within the principles of our democratic system. At the beginning of the decade, the Korean War was going. Eisenhower gets in. He's got McCarthyism and the Red Scare uh, on his plate. He's still got the Korean War to deal with. He's got the march of the Soviet Union that is uh, becoming more industrialized and beginning, you know, they put Sputnik up into the skies in the late 50s and are building a, a, a arsenal of missiles. Uh, you've got the civil rights problems that are starting to, uh, to spike uh, and becoming a real question about what direction the country's going with, uh, going toward in terms of, of racial politics. Uh, there were there were economic highs, but there were also some economic lows in the 50s, two recessions in that decade. So so it's it's a time just like any other time when there are complexities, challenges, uh, policy problems. I wouldn't say it was uh, some kind of golden time when no one had to lift a finger. I mean, really, uh, it was uh, still a, a period of anxiety. Eisenhower used the term, we live in an age of peril. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the anxiety about the Cold War was very palpable. Yeah, I mean, I uh, think more of that, uh, and I, I just, one of my great regrets is that I'll never get the chance to talk to the great David Halberstam um, ever, um, but uh, reading his book, The 50s, and you see that little bit of a darker uh, vision, and uh, Tip O'Neill's uh, biography, he talks about how in the 50s in Massachusetts, I mean, there were people starving, you know, and or people without yeah. good public education, so there's this idea that it was this miracle time. We pray that peoples of all faiths, all races, all nations, may have their great human needs satisfied. That those now denied opportunity shall come to enjoy it to the full. That all who yearn for freedom may experience its spiritual blessing. Some of the policies that change that uh, were, you know, come out of the New Deal, Great Society, New Deal, but talking specifically about the New Deal, and you look at Eisenhower, and he's one of those guys, because he's GOP, I think a lot of people on the left particularly like Eisenhower because anything he says, you know, that's positive perhaps about like a New Deal program or Social Security or something like that uh, can be used as kind of a lever. You know, there's a little bit of this dynamic yeah. with, with Ronald Reagan, too. But what was his his policy towards the New Deal programs of, of FDR and Truman? Well, uh, as like a good politician, and, and again, I stipulate that I think he was a very savvy politician, he ran for president as a conservative, and he governed as a moderate. It's a classic case. He, in 1952, he poured scorn on the New Deal. He was extremely critical of what he called the, the, sort of, uh, the, the, the creep of state socialism. 
he said on the hustings, you know, uh, the, 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 the New Deal is threatening to become a, a new kind of dictatorship mm-hmm. in which uh, the government provides for everybody and then individual initiative is smothered and then uh, there's, there's no gumption anymore and people will just be turned into zombies. And it sounds uh, uh, like a caricature, and of course it was, but he was running for president and he wanted to distinguish himself from the other guys. So he, he, you know, he pitched his campaign really to the base of his party which was at that time still very hostile to the New Deal. But when he came into office, it, it, it was a different story. Um, the, the inherent moderate in him uh, came out. The thing that we always point to, and I think it is significant, is that he, um, he took the Social Security program, the greatest legacy, and arguably, of the, of the New Deal, and he, uh, he passed legislation that expanded it uh, to self-employed people. So suddenly, about 10, more million, 10 million people uh, were added to the roles of Social Security who hadn't been on it before. So we, we say he expanded Social Security rather than cutting it. Uh, he was actually in favor of it because Social Security is a perfect kind of moderate Republican thing. Yeah. You have to work. To, to pay into it, and then you get a reward later, but you have to work. And in other areas, he, um, he was quite moderate. He, he, he kept tax rates pretty high in the 50s. Uh, he was a great believer in infrastructure spending. Um, he had ideas about public housing and even, uh, even a kind of national health insurance program. So the big takeaway here is Ike believed government could be good, that it could work well, that it could, it could help improve the lives of citizens, provided that it didn't get it didn't take control of citizens lives we we have a you know there's a president in office now who could be you know without getting too deep into it uh pretty one could make a pretty easy criticism about his uh, organizational skills or how you know there's different messages for each day he seems to be taking a lot of different positions but eisenhower uh, is an example of somebody who applied military principles to the White House. For instance, the first real chief of staff position in mm-hmm. Sherman Adams. Um, and, and then from there, building kind of a hierarchy to, to make decisions. Now, is that true or is, is that some of that, uh, just like kind of the image that we have of him? Oh, no, it's definitely true. I mean, mm. I think we tend to forget, you know, because the, the, the personalities of Roosevelt and Truman are, are so large and they're so significant and we respect them uh, in their historical legacy. But uh, those guys ran a really messy White House operation. I mean, <laughs> Ro- Roosevelt basically, you know, had had, you know, a tiny staff and he and he and he never told anybody everything. <laughs> so he, he played all of his advisors off against each other. He kept everything secret, never wrote anything down. Uh, Truman was a catastrophically disorganized um, executive in many ways, and it showed. And so Eisenhower comes into the White House, which is the staff is small. Uh, it has it's a little chaotic. And he says, well, we're going to have a different system. And there's no doubt that uh, he's, he brings a kind of uh, uh, a, a kind of military planning organization to it, which was natural for him. I mean, that's how he helped to win the Second World War was by planning and having a good staff. So he definitely brought in uh, uh, Sherman Adams, who was a former governor of New Hampshire, um, a very, very flinty, silent kind of tough guy. Uh, he rapidly became known as the abominable no man because he always said no to everything and everybody. He was the perfect chief of staff. He was totally loyal to Eisenhower, and he could care less about everybody else. Uh, and then he used the National Security Council. He used the cabinet in a very disciplined way. Uh, no, Ike, uh, Ike knew how government 
and big bureaucracies uh, work. And he tried to make the presidency more effective um, in a way, I think, that that shaped later presidencies for sure. And uh, another thing where he uh, where you get a sense of him, I think you give an example in the book where uh, in terms of foreign power relations, particularly relations with the Soviet Union at that time, uh, which were tense, um, he he's he compares it to a poker game. Uh, you want to put all your white chips, all your blue chips, everything up there. Let them know that you'll use it if you have to. Yeah. But then encourage negotiations where possible. Tough stance. A lot of uh, leaders today, I'm sure even the current president and, and you know, Presidents Reagan, Presidents Bush, uh, uh, who advocate that kind of stance, you know, would probably take that lesson from Eisenhower. Well, I'll say that uh, Eisenhower believed in in amassing power, you know, and mm-hmm. that's how he that's how, that's kind of general he was. He was a he was a a heavy, um, you know, heavy package kind of general. He, he didn't believe in the surgical strike. It, it was about crushing the enemy, and that's what he did in Europe in 1944 and 45. Uh, the, the, and it's no shock and awe. It's just total complete domination. And that's the American way of war in which he was trained. And that's really the principles he brought into the White House, which is I'm going to amass all the power that I need, whether it's on domestic, uh, you know, dealing with domestic politics mm-hmm. or if it's dealing with the Soviets. And I'm going to let him know that I've got everything here ready to go. And if you want to go that way, we can do that. But if you prefer to negotiate, I'm definitely open to negotiation. And Eisenhower created in the minds of his adversaries a certain amount of uncertainty he kept him guessing, and mm. he was just on, uh, just a little bit hard to read for the Soviets, and it made them a little bit anxious. And they never really tested Eisenhower in a way that um, they they tested John Kennedy, for example, uh, in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it's very revealing. I think uh, Khrushchev uh, looked at Eisenhower and thought, "That's a very serious man. I'm not sure I really want to get into a a, a, a poker game with him." Yeah, no, I think Khrushchev definitely seize the opportunity that Kennedy uh, provided. Um, Eisenhower, uh, at least when Kennedy was a candidate, not a Kennedy fan. No. (laughs) Well, and why would he be? (laughs) He was the young whippersnapper. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the Kennedy that we know, uh, the the Kennedy that we know as president, the the remarkable orator, the the man who could inspire people, the, the visionary, the the, the 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 man who who just called something out of us uh, as as Americans and made us think about um, our country in a different way that 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 Kennedy was not really quite present yet in 1960 um, or certainly not in 1958 or 57 when he was emerging as a possible candidate so you know Kennedy Eisenhower knew Kennedy as a very young inexperienced senator uh, who would say and do anything to get ahead that's how I viewed him and he he, he was he, he mistrusted him I think he misread Kennedy initially and I think he came to respect him once he took uh, Kennedy became president but in the 1960 campaign of course Kennedy was running against Nixon, but really he was running against Eisenhower because he was running against the old Republican Party. He was running against the the old generation of leaders from that time. And he said a lot of things um, in the 1960 campaign that were pretty bitter in terms of criticizing Eisenhower for being 
you know, boring and asleep and uh, and retirement and uh, being like an elephant and uh, you know, with kind of dull and slow and whatnot. And 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 Eisenhower did take it personally. <laughs> it struck me, and this is something that although I've studied this period a lot, uh, how much Eisenhower was affected by Nixon's defeat, uh, where I had maybe thought. Uh, well, you know, it wasn't his presidency and he had some um, iffy feelings about Nixon anyway. But it really your book reveals that uh, Eisenhower was pretty hurt by yeah. Kennedy's win. Well, it, it, it devastated him because he felt it was a personal defeat. Uh, he felt mm. that a 43 year old uh, senator with no experience suddenly had defeated Eisenhower, uh, whereas really he defeated Nixon. And Nixon was a very. Um, was really not a terrific candidate in 1960. Uh, he hadn't found his particular voice. Uh, he was running for a third Eisenhower term, but he was no Eisenhower. So he was not a great candidate. And uh, I, But I think that Eisenhower did take it personally. He was, he was very blue. He was very down. At the same time, and this is a puzzle, a bit of a paradox, Eisenhower didn't do a great deal to help Richard Nixon win in 1960. And that's a, a curious aspect of his competitive personality. I think he never believed Nixon would make a great president. And he, I think he felt that he himself had been a great president. And it bothered him a little bit. He never said it, but it bothered him a little bit that Nixon was going to be the the next Eisenhower. I don't think he ever thought Nixon really matched up. So on the one hand, he was kind of I think he I think there was not enough fire in the belly about Nixon running. And on the other hand, he was terribly sad when Nixon lost. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Because it was a little bit of a mark against uh, against him. Uh, yeah, I compare that to the situation today in understanding 2016 and what it might be like, say, for uh, President Obama. Relatively popular. I mean, he had his critics, of course, uh, but I mean, not as popular as Eisenhower all the time. But, you know, in some polls here or there, yes, different times. Uh, relatively popular president. Two terms. Yep. Not seriously challenged. I guess 2012 got a little close, but, you know, not much more than rhetoric, kind of like the 1956 election. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, gets into the tail end of his year and it seems like going to pass it off to a successor and also a successor that has some challenges, uh, that has, that had, that maybe wasn't the best candidate and had critics. And this person with no experience in government then becomes president. Yeah. No, it, it must have been devastating. And I, I'm, I'm sure that one day uh, 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 former President Obama will 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 speak more fully mm -hmm. about how he felt uh, the day after the election and in the weeks after the election. You know, right, he's doing the right thing now, which is to, in a sense, you know, step back a little bit. Although he's getting back involved in in uh, in, in politics for in state races and so on. But That's right. I'm sure it was devastating, and in many ways it was a worse defeat because uh, President Trump was a figure who had been. Uh, a leading critic and and uh, not just a critic but a but a 
a, a, a scourge of, of Obama's throughout his presidency. Yeah. Uh, and so for, for Trump to win and, and to effectively you know, defeat the third Obama term, I just can't imagine anything worse, at least with Kennedy. Uh, Eisenhower could say, well, the Democrats got back in. That's kind of the cycles of American history. Pendulum swings. It's not the end of the world. Kennedy was a recognizable figure, a, a leader of the Democratic Party. Trump was not a recognizable figure, and it seemed a, such a dramatic uh, departure from the norm. So I'm sure that for President Obama to, to, lose, to, 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 to see his successor in the Democratic Party, Hillary Clinton, go down to defeat to someone who was so outside of the system, I think that must have just been a catastrophic blow. And I wonder about the I- impact on history. I talk ab- about this a bit that um, for a president to pass off the presidency, as did Reagan, really the last successful one in recent memory with uh, with George H.W. Bush, if for a president to pass off, you know, says something about their presidency and for a president to not be able to pass off same uh, policy, even where they're personally popular, seems to be like a little bit of a mark. Well, I, I think that for all of his talents and his success while in office, the one area that he, he was not as uh, as successful at was in building the Republican Party mm-hmm. into a into a party that could carry his legacy in, in the future. So not just that Nixon didn't get elected in 1960, but that the Republican Party hadn't figured out where it was going to be. Um, and you see that in 1964 when, uh, against Eisenhower's judgment, uh, Goldwater gets the nomination. And then he's, he takes the party in a very different direction. And then 1968, it's Nixon, but it's not the same Nixon of 1960. It's a, it's a much craftier, um, more, more sharply partisan, mm. uh, and, and, and further to the right Nixon of 1968. He wins. So the Republican Party is not figure has, is not the Eisenhower party of centrism and moderateness. It, it goes further to the right. And of course, the Reagan revolution changes that and institutionalizes that. So one of the marks against Eisenhower, you could say, is that he didn't build the Republican Party into a machine in, 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 that, could, that could extend his image. And in fact, you, you, you look at, the, at the, um, the congressional races throughout his presidency, and the Republicans lost seats in the Congress at every at every election uh, during the Eisenhower years from 54, 56, mm-hmm. 58. Uh, and and he, the party was kind of was hollowed out, but in a large extent, even as Eisenhower was the most popular man in America. And in fact, the most popular two term president uh, since the end of the Second World War. So that's a real puzzle. Yeah, it's a very similar thing too to Obama's presidency. Yeah. Uh, popular two terms wildly popular in the beginning there but yet the party infrastructure gets hollowed out uh hundreds of of state seats lost and the congress twice eventually yep. losing the senate uh yeah and, and uh, you know Eisenhower kind of got along at least well enough with Lyndon Johnson the democratic majority leader at the time yeah, I mean, he, 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 well, yes and no. Yes and no. I mean, uh, they, they, they got along. Okay. Although I must admit, I'm probably, I'm probably getting that more from Lyndon Johnson's side, which is probably biased. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, Johnson would say he'd get along with anybody, but, but, yeah. but, uh, but, but Johnson was, um, was a man who, uh, was so ambitious and it, when he was in the Senate and he was so crafty and he knew how to, 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 uh, to wield legislative power. I mean, Robert Cairo has has demonstrated this so brilliantly mm-hmm. in his many books. Um, and so when Eisenhower wanted to get something done and it had to go through Johnson, Johnson really made him pay a price. Um, and it was not easy. Uh, Johnson was able to really embarrass 
the administration uh, during the Sputnik crisis. He held a lot of hearings that uh, highlighted what he claimed were the weaknesses and the missile gap and the, the fa- failing, falling behind the Soviets and so forth. That was a terrible uh, political crisis. And um, he also helped to pass, but also helped to weaken the 1957 Civil Rights Act that Eisenhower thought would be a real legacy of his, but turned out to be kind of a dead letter because Johnson, a Southern Democrat, uh, mm. basically took out all the teeth. Um, so it, it, they, they had their, their Johnson and Eisenhower is an interesting relationship. They, they admired one another, I think, to a sense, but they were they were pretty tough fighters uh, and, and in, de- in their respective corners. premium podcast from my history could beat up your politics for as little as two dollars a month you'll get more content including an extra podcast where we have additional content for instance in this interview we're going to talk a bit about eisenhower and civil rights in the premium podcast we're going to go more into detail about the 1957 civil rights bill signed by eisenhower what it did what it didn't do what he wanted it to do and how Lyndon Johnson and others changed that. That's on the Premium Podcast, along with at least 40 other bonus content items and episodes that you won't hear on the normal podcast channel. can be as little as $2 a month more if you want to support the program more and get more things. www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. You brought up civil rights, so let's talk about it. I think that's uh, one of the points uh, you might have just made there. That perhaps Eisenhower was looking for a stronger bill in '57. You know, it does create a federal department, but not much else. Um, yeah. And what's his legacy on civil rights? And let's ask that question. You know, judging him from the 1950s, like let's say we're not applying yeah. too much of a, a I caution my audience too much of our modern blinders on there how, you know what's what sh, what sh, how should we view him on civil rights judging it from what he the situation as it was in in the 1950s well that's a very important uh sort of caveat that you've put down there I totally agree with you the 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 fact is if we look at him from today he he looks like uh he's just part of an antique you know, generation of powerful uh, white leaders who really just didn't understand the crisis of civil rights and really didn't do much to help it along. But if you look at it from the 50s, you see that it's just the opposite. Um, here's a man who really wasn't prepared to deal with the civil rights issues of the day. He had no background. He really had no understanding of the issues. Um, but but instead of uh, staying in his lane and saying, hey, that's not my problem. I don't I don't those aren't my people. It's not my constituency. He actually made a number of just critical uh, interventions that um, that contemporaries at the time, both white and black, hmm. viewed as very significant. 
critics in the South were very critical of Eisenhower's uh, policies on civil rights because they felt he was going much too fast, much too far. Um, and many African-American leaders of the 50s praised Eisenhower for what he was doing. Uh, and we tend to forget this, but uh, African-Americans voted Republican in the 1950s in pretty significant numbers. Right. Uh, in 19, 1956, Eisenhower got 40% of the black vote, 40%. Um, by far the largest percentage uh, of any Republican ever, you know, since since that time. So, you know, it, it, it kind of scrambles your circuits a little bit. So he has a important legacy. And, and, and the, you know, the, the key the keynotes, of course, are appointing Earl Warren to the Supreme Court and getting the Brown versus Board uh, decision through that. Eisenhower didn't write that decision, obviously, but he knew that Warren was a progressive on civil rights when he appointed him. There's no question he knew that that decision was already in the works. That case was already in the mm-hmm. works when he appointed Warren to the court. And then we get um, a little bit of a cool down where he's anxious that maybe it is going too fast. And in the 54, 55, 56, Eisenhower is sort of slowing down a little bit. But then he wants another legacy piece of legislation. He pushes forward the Civil Rights Act of 1957, trying to strengthen the hand of the attorney general to intervene in civil rights cases in the South. And that gets weakened by the Democrats, Southern Democrats, but nonetheless, it does get through. And then you get the capstone event, really an outstanding example of Eisenhower's uh, leadership. And that's the intervention in Little Rock uh, in 1957 to enforce the Supreme Court's ruling that public schools be desegregated. It killed Eisenhower to do that. He hated the decision Mm. to send in federal troops into Little Rock. But his his view was the law is the law, and there is no way uh, some governor anywhere can defy uh, federal authority. That would be the end of our system. And he had no hesitations in once he once he saw it in those terms. He had no hesitations. Um, but you know, typical of his time, he was a a man who wasn't quite sure what to make of of the civil rights cause. It, it wasn't it wasn't his cause. It wasn't his language. And it took him a while to learn, in a sense. And he, I think he learned on the job. I think he became more sympathetic, empathetic. But, of course, he's no civil rights hero. He's a kind of a, 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 a figure that is is a transitional figure, uh, a crucial transitional figure uh, in this regard. And I think he I think his legacy is actually really very important and quite significant. Where I think he doesn't add to the. Um, to the majesty of the rhetoric of, of civil rights. He doesn't add to the great speeches. Uh, his speech at Little Rock is, is, as you reference, almost entirely about federal power. There is no adjoining right. rhetoric about why this is a good cause. He is merely meeting in, uh, you know, speaking to you from the room of, of Jefferson and Jackson and Lincoln and, telling you that I must enforce the court's decision. Uh, right, he doesn't add to that, um, but um, maybe it was too early, maybe it would have been helpful. He does have some politics, I guess, you know, governor of South Carolina, governor of Texas. Uh, he wants, mm-hmm. he, you know, he's Jimmy Burns' friend, and he wants the state of Texas in the 56 and 60 elections. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it, he's got some politics there, there too. Yeah, he's balancing it out. I, I I like what you said about the he doesn't add to the majesty of the of the rhetoric, and I think you're right. He he doesn't ever seize the question, um, in a way that heightens the moral stakes of the civil rights crisis, and that's because he didn't. That's just not who he was. 
he really didn't do that in, uh, when confronting many issues. But and that's where we today we hear him as a little tone deaf. But I would also add, just as an mm-hmm. example, that that John F. Kennedy um, also took a long time to grasp the moral dimensions of the civil rights crisis. So, you know, it's not as if there was uh, waiting in the wings uh, the great president of the 1950s who could have uh, dramatically changed the civil rights landscape in a way that Eisenhower failed to do. I mean, that's just not true. Uh, If Adlai Stevenson had won, after all, Stevenson uh, was the head of a Democratic Party that was completely divided on race. Right. His first vice presidential candidate was John Sparkman of <laughs> Alabama, who was a segregationist. So that they it would, uh, you know, Stevenson was quite cool on civil rights. So in a way, I think you get maybe the best you could have gotten out of Eisenhower in the decade of the 50s. Kennedy's going to be a critical transitional figure, too. Takes him a while to get uh, to 1963, where he actually embraces the moral imperative here. And then everything changes after that. Let's talk about, because you've got to, with Eisenhower, the military-industrial complex. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals. I I have a little different, maybe different view on that, and uh, you know you could. I know he makes a speech at the end of his presidency, and certainly everyone looks at that today as a warning against, say, military power or something like that. But I think I think it's important to remember that, as we discussed earlier, you also kind of built up the government, and part of that building up of the government was building up a more permanent military, a permanent, let's say, provision of military equipment versus just, you know, what we used to do in the past, World War One, World War Two. When there's a war, we convert, you know, General Motors yep. into the war machine and 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 do it at that time. He kind of, you know, his presidency oversees this kind of permanent, um, really the permanent military complex that he describes. What is that warning um, really against? Yeah, I wish you would talk about that a bit. Yeah, I think it's a wonderful speech, and I think people should read the whole thing because uh, your 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 hunch, I think, is completely borne out uh, here. And that Eisenhower admits in the speech, he says, "Hey, we have been facing a a, a terrible uh, trial in dealing with the uh, aggress- aggression around the world of of the communist bloc, and in order to preserve freedom, in order to preserve our liberties." He says, we've had to build up a military-industrial complex. We had to create it. Uh, and that has required a permanent peacetime military establishment. And he said, we don't like it. It would be nice if we didn't have to have it, but we do. And the truth is that during the Eisenhower period, we got used to, we became, you know, we, we, became, we accepted a very, very high degree of permanent military spending in peacetime. I mean, and that's something different from the war years, from the First World War, Second World War, Korean War period. Uh, we're spending, you know, 10% of GDP throughout the 1950s on the defense budget, which is a titanic sum of money. I mean, even today, it's around around three or four. So uh, Eisenhower had to defend that, and he defended it by saying, "Look, we're in a we're in a long run, long haul war against the Soviets. We're keeping it cold, but we got to be ready in case anything goes bad." Having said that, then he goes on to say, we have to guard against the unwarranted influence of this military-industrial complex. And what he meant by that was generals and 
the the military industry mm -hmm. will always ask for more and leaders have to say no leaders have to say no to the military leaders have to say no to the to the uh the the, the um the corporations and the the technological guys and i think what he was saying was the man you just elected president john f kennedy has no experience in doing this so citizens of america hold his feet to the fire make sure you understand that he needs uh to say no to the or else he'll be swallowed he'll be eaten alive by the, by the interests of this system we've created uh, I think there's a slight unveiled warning and criticism of Kennedy because uh, it's just a couple of days before he leaves the leaves, leaves the White House permanently. And um, he said, I could do mm -hmm. it. Eisenhower could control the military industrial complex. We'll see about this young whippersnapper. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is such an interesting interpretation <laughs> of it because that is probably completely the reverse of the way a lot of people, particularly those who are on the you know, left side of, of politics, See that warning. Yeah. I also read in there notes of the same things that he said about New Deal programs. In other words, this, this military spending is yeah. just a new government program and, and you have to be a little careful because with government programs, they can provide yeah. some good. He likes the social security, but you also have to be aware of the complexes that build around them and people just start endlessly lobbying for them to go up and up and up. Yeah. So I, I saw exactly. that. Um, one of the other things he seems concerned about with, with Kennedy coming in, uh, I read the Richard Reeves, President Kennedy, and they talk about Eisenhower and Kennedy's first meeting right before Kennedy's inauguration. And, and I'm sure, you know, the old general's a little suspicious as youngster, but he's going to be the next president. So he, he, he says something like, look, one of the things I wasn't able to resolve was Southeast Asia, <laughs> you know, and the, and this comment now, it seems like, uh, at least it, this is Reeves' account of it. I mean, this this comment now seems like so, you know, prophetic. What is his involvement that in, in Vietnam, and you know, does he deserve any any blame for that? Well, it, it, it's a it's a it's a it's a uh, a story that that changes over time. In the in 1954. Uh, when the French Empire is falling apart and they're begging the Americans to get involved uh, to help them uh, defeat the Vietnamese in the north, uh, Eisenhower says, mm -hmm. no thanks. We're not getting in. Um, that would be a disaster. And uh, we would be sending in you know, the Marines and Army divisions to fight in the jungle in Asia for a on behalf of a colonial empire. That's a, that's a, that's a no, uh, you know, that's, that's a disaster. We're not going to do that. So he stays out in 1954. But he also turns on the tap, starts funding uh, the uh, the South Vietnamese uh, government that emerges from the the settlement there in 1954, and so South Vietnam becomes a client state of the United States during Eisenhower's watch. So prestige and money have been expended there, and and by the time Kennedy comes in, the picture is a little different. It's really important that South Vietnam stay protected and supported by the United States. In addition to which, are the neighboring states. Uh, Laos and Cambodia, which were also looking like they're getting a little wobbly. So Eisenhower tells Kennedy, the new president, you're going to have trouble in Southeast Asia. And in particular, the issue they were most worried about was Laos, because the, there was a, a revolution going on there, and they, were, they feared that Laos might flip to the communist side. So Eisenhower gives Kennedy the impression that he, Eisenhower, was willing to to uh, intervene in Laos in 1960 uh, to halt it going communist. And Kennedy comes away saying, man, if Eisenhower says we should in intervene in Laos, and he's known for his restraint, 
then I, I better, you know, think about that. And maybe that's something I'm going to have to do. So he, he, the, the, in, in passing the baton, he's basically, Eisenhower is basically saying to Kennedy, uh, you might have to, you know, to get all, you might have to, to, to gather the, uh, the troops and actually intervene over there. And, and uh, on your watch, there's going to be big, uh, big doings in Southeast Asia. So, you know, thanks very much. Ike. <laughs> yes. <laughs> on his way out the door, uh, he's like, you got a big mess going on down there. In Asia. Yeah, that's the way it struck me. And I think that uh, to, to an extent, people have looked at uh, Eisenhower and said, well, there was the domino theory. Uh, there is the, the foremost proponent of big showing big strength uh, and what may have gotten us into trouble after many other, you know, presidents. And I mean, you got, you got, of course, the change between Kennedy and Johnson, which I think is hugely significant there, but yeah. leading to a yeah. theory that, you know, not uh, standing up and making a real stand and not continuing to commit might be something that, that, that Eisenhower wouldn't have wanted and his even after his presidency his his image is still there yeah yeah no it's uh it's so fascinating the way that these transitions reveal uh characters of presidents and also the 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 characters of the times the the other classic case that Eisenhower burdened Kennedy with was Cuba and uh here's a case where you know Eisenhower had approved and and overseen a development of a pretty big covert operation to overthrow the Castro government and he but he didn't have enough time uh to launch it so Kennedy comes in he says wow there's a huge plan here to to set these cuban exiles into cuba and let them overthrow castro and eisenhower knew all about it and and he built it and he approved it so it's probably pretty good and there's a lot of pressure on kennedy to uh to deal with Castro, and he approves the plan, and it becomes the Bay of Pigs, and it's a complete disaster. <laughs> now, is that Eisenhower's fault, or is it Kennedy's? Um, we could have a debate about that. Yeah. The Kennedy, and Kennedy and Eisenhower meet soon after the Bay of Pigs. President Kennedy invites Eisenhower to, to Camp David and says, geez, you know, what do I do now? And Eisenhower grills him and says, why did you launch that program with so little air support? And why did you, once having gone in, you had to finish it? You couldn't pull out, and, and he's very critical. So yeah, I mean, I, I fall on the Kennedy side. I, you know, um, but um, I, you know, on the, the the blame, it's more Kennedy's blame. I, 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 my speculation, of course, that's all it is. Is I wonder if Eisenhower, sure, Eisenhower had this plan, like he probably had many plans. Yeah. Um, I wonder if he would have even launched it. I think what he would have done. And this is this this I, I believe is uh, we we could demonstrate that he would have been much more careful in uh, analyzing the battle plan. Uh, Kennedy just took the CIA's word for it. He he had no way. He really did not study the plan. And Ike would have looked at it and said, "Well, I don't like certain elements of this. It's too small. It's too narrow. There's not enough. There's not a plan B. There's too little air support." Um, and, and that's what he told Kennedy was. It's you know this the way. This plan was never fully developed, and so uh, I, I do think once he once he would have gotten his hands in, into the deep, the, the the sort of bowels of the of the invasion plan, I think Ike would have significantly increased it its scope. Doesn't mean he would have launched it, although I actually think he would have. Uh, I think he really wanted to get rid of Castro terribly, um, but nonetheless, Kennedy botched it, and it's one of the one of the early 
stains in his presidency, but you know from which he learns. But it's a fascinating uh, moment. Besides what we discussed, anything else that you think is is important to know about Eisenhower? I think he's a man for our times, mm-hmm. and I I say this because I think we are desperate for leaders who. Um, are unafraid to be centrists. You know, Eisenhower was not fundamentally a partisan. He, you know, he was a party leader, but he wasn't a partisan. He would gladly welcome Democrats into his coalition if they wanted to be there. He pushed out the really radical Republicans out of his coalition. Uh, he was a centrist. He wanted the best for the country, and he had a very <clears throat> broad understanding of what that meant. Today, you know, it's not a, it's not a news item, but I think we all agree we're terribly polarized. There's no middle ground, and there are no leaders that try to run to the middle. They all run to the margins. So I just hope that we can look back and say, you know, we do have examples in our fairly recent past of leaders who knew how to build a, a political base in the center rather than on the on the periphery, on the on the margins, and um, and and he became incredibly popular by doing that. So I, I think we, we we could use a little more Eisenhower, you know, <laughs> maybe a little less of the sharp polarization in our politics. I don't know that we're going to get it, but I do feel like he's a man we could learn a lot about in, for our times. Yeah, I completely agree there. And I've been speaking with William Hitchcock, the author of The Age of Eisenhower, America and the World in the 1950s. William, thanks for coming on. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. I really appreciate it. A wonderful conversation. Great question. And a big thank you to Will Hitchcock for coming on the program today to talk about uh, what is really a, a popular topic for this audience at My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Anything about presidents generally, and especially Eisenhower. Everybody likes Ike. Remember about the premium podcast. It can be as little as $2 a month. Help support me. Help support the podcast that you like and get more content. Get archived episodes as well as new premium episodes, including uh, that one we talked about, about 1957 and the Civil Rights Bill. www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com. Thanks for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.